Well, hello, hello, and welcome to the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. This is Stuart Haynes, the host of the iFormerX podcast, and I'm so grateful that you're listening and engaging in this professional development activity. As our listeners well know, the sodium glucose transporter 2 inhibitors, or more affectionately known as the SGLT2 inhibitors for short, and the glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonists, or GLP-1 receptor agonists, have had a very significant impact on practice over the past five years. Not only do these agents effectively lower blood glucose, but more importantly, they improve cardiovascular and renal outcomes and save lives. In previous iFormerX commentaries and podcasts, we've discussed a number of clinical trials related to these two important classes of agents. Well, the newest GLP-1 receptor agonist, terzepatide, is actually a, a dual agonist. Not only does terzepatide stimulate GLP-1 receptors, but it also acts on the glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide, or I prefer to call it the GIP receptor. Theoretically, this dual mechanism of action could result in lower blood glucose and greater weight loss. But what is theoretically possible doesn't always pan out in clinical trials. And even if a dual agonist is more potent in terms of glucose lowering, it might not be as well tolerated or it may have some unacceptable adverse effect. So that's why I wanted our guest today, Dr. Nabila Faridi and Dr. Kathleen Pincus, to critically review the recently published SURPASS-2 study, which compared the efficacy and safety of terzepatide to semaglutide. Dr. Faridi is a PGY2 ambulatory care pharmacy practice resident, and Dr. Pincus is the ambulatory care residency program director and a full-time member of the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy faculty. Dr. Pincus is no stranger to iFormerX. She currently serves on our editorial board and has been a frequent contributor and reviewer. Uh, Dr. Faridi is a first-time contributor, and I sincerely hope this won't be her last time. And joining us today to discuss this important study and to add some additional perspective and the potential role of Terzepatide for the treatment of type 2 diabetes is Diana Isaacs from the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, Dr. Isaacs has reviewed the commentary, but she's also been a frequent contributor to iFormerX and is internationally known for her work caring for complex patients with type 1 and type 2 diabetes. In fact, Dr. Isaacs is calling in this evening from Saudi Arabia. So welcome to you all, Nabila, Katie, Diana. Thanks for joining. Hi, Stuart. Thanks so much for having me on today's episode. Happy to be on the podcast again and happy to contribute to iFormerX. Yeah, this is Diana. Thank you so much for having me again. It's really great to be here. So um, before we talk about the study that Nabila and, and Katie reviewed in their iFormerX commentary, I'd like to ask a question to you, Diana. I, I think there has been a lot of attention given to the SGLT2 inhibitors over the past two to three years due to the, the expanded use in patient populations that don't have diabetes. But I, I think there has been some really exciting research using the GLP-1 receptor agonists over the past few years as well. 
what do you see as the potential advantages of the GLP-1 receptor agonists and what their place in therapy might be? And, and while a combination of a SGLT2 inhibitor and a GLP-1 receptor agonist is really, really pricey, does it make sense to use these two classes of agents together? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's definitely a lot of advantages to GLP-1 receptor agonists. Um, they have a very unique mechanism of action where they're actually targeting really like four mechanisms in one. Um, they're slowing gastric emptying, you know, they're promoting satiety in the brain, and then they're also increasing insulin from the pancreas, but they're doing so in a glucose-dependent way, which therefore is not expected to cause hypoglycemia on its own, and then it's also suppressing glucagon. Um, in addition to that, though, um, there's, you know, a number of benefits, especially with the weight loss that we're seeing. And, it's, you know, there's so much weight loss that, in fact, two of the, the drugs in this category have been approved specifically for weight management, even irrespective of diabetes in higher doses. So because of all of this, the when you look at, like, the American Diabetes Association standards of care, the GLP-1 receptor agonists are really all over that. And one other thing that's very special about this category is the cardiovascular outcome data. So, you know, in addition to obviously the benefit of lowering A1C and then the weight benefits, there's also been shown to really reduce major adverse cardiovascular events like, you know, heart attacks and strokes and cardiovascular death. So because of all that, the ADA standards of care really advocate that if someone has atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or ASCVD or is at high risk, that either a GLP-1 receptor agonist uh, with a proven cardiovascular disease benefit or an SGLT2 inhibitor should be used. And in fact, if one is used and there still needs to be some additional A1C lowering, that you should use one of the others in the other category. So really going to your point, you know, when would you combine these two classes? I mean, they work very differently. The SGLT2 inhibitors are working on the kidney. So, and they also have the benefit of, of weight loss as well as the cardiovascular benefits. So it's actually a wonderful combination to use together. And then not just for ASCVD, but also looking at chronic kidney disease, uh, many of the GLP-1 receptor agonists now have shown benefits with renal outcomes. And in fact, for chronic kidney disease, especially if there's not albuminuria, uh, the standards, again, really state, you know, GLP-1 receptor agonist or SGLT2 inhibitor. And just something to note with the ASCVD is that if someone's at risk, even if their A1C is at target, uh, these drugs are actually still recommended, really irrespective of the A1C goal and even irrespective of metformin use. Um, and just a couple other points is just that also if there is a compelling need to minimize hypoglycemia, these are one of the preferred classes because they don't, you know, by themselves, they're not expected to cause hypoglycemia. And then um, if there's a need to lose weight or prevent weight gain, these are also a good class. And then one last point is the, the guidelines also advocate, you know, first injectable, because most of the 
drugs in this class are injected, first injectable should really be a GLP-1 receptor agonist over insulin for type 2 diabetes. And if someone's already on a basal insulin and you want to intensify their regimen before adding prandial insulin, you should really be adding a GLP-1 receptor agonist. So um, lots of favorable evidence and the guidelines really advocate use of both of these classes of medications. So Nabila, let's talk about the SURPASS-2 study and the potential role of terzepatide might have in the treatment of type 2 diabetes. The paper was published in late June 2021 in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, and the paper is entitled Terzepatide versus Semaglutide Once Weekly in Patients with Type 2 Diabetes. And we provide a link to that paper on the iPharmaRx website, but can you give us a brief summary of the methods and the results of the study? Absolutely, Stuart. So as you mentioned, this is an international randomized open-label phase three trial, which compared three doses of subcutaneous trisepatide at 5 milligrams, 10 milligrams, and 15 milligrams to one milligram weekly of semaglutide for up to 40 weeks. This trial enrolled approximately 1,800 adults that were inadequately controlled in their diabetes management despite metformin treatment. They included patients with an A1C between 7 to 10.5% and a BMI of 25 or more. The primary endpoint of this trial was to determine the change in A1C levels from baseline to week 40. In this primary endpoint, they did find a reduction of A1C of about 2 to 2.3 percentage points in the treatment groups and about 1.6% in the semaglutide group. One of the key secondary endpoints was to assess the change in body weight from baseline to week 40 and attaining A1C levels below 7%. In the results, they did find promising outcomes with the study drug trisepatide versus semaglutide. In this trial, they also looked at the most common reason for discontinuation of the study drug, which was primarily associated with gastrointestinal side effects, such as nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. So, Nabila, every study has strengths and weaknesses and potential limitations. And and given that this was an industry-sponsored study, do you have any concerns about the design and conduct of the study? Are there any potential sources of bias or confounders that you're concerned about? Yeah, I did consider the fact that this was an industry-sponsored study. However, I do think it was great that they had an active comparator with the semaglutide versus placebo to really show the effects of trisepatide. They did enroll a sufficient sample size to meet a power of 90% to test for non-inferiority as compared to semaglutide. In terms of limitation, there are few. One is the dose of semaglutide. While one milligram per week is appropriate and the titration was also appropriate, we know higher doses are studied for better A1C control and weight reduction. I did feel that the short duration of the trial, it was only 40 weeks, so it was quite short. We could expect to see better A1C reductions had this trial been longer. 
the enrolled population of African Americans was less than 5%, and the baseline A1C of enrollees was approximately 8%, which we know isn't representative of many patient populations with diabetes throughout the country. I know that isn't true for the patient population that we see in inner city Baltimore. Lastly, this trial was not blinded, and that's because of the different doses, dose escalation strategies, and devices used for the subcutaneous injection. Now, I wonder if that could have any bias in terms of the reporting. So these are my thoughts on the limitations. So Katie, this study suggests that trisapatide has a significant impact on body weight, and I, and I think many clinicians would consider semaglutide the most potent weight loss drug based on the results of the step one study. What are your thoughts about the weight loss observed with trisapatide in this study? And does the weight loss in this study rival or perhaps exceed the weight loss seen with high-dose semaglutide? So if we look at the percentage of patients that achieved equal to or more than a 5% weight reduction, the findings with terzepatide in this study were still less than what they found with high-dose semaglutide in the step one study. Though they are roughly in the same range of weight loss that we see with liraglutide at three milligrams. A few things about the study design, though, that I think we need to keep in mind when interpreting those numbers. One is the dosing. So the dose of semaglutide used in the comparator group here was only one milligram a week, where in the step one trial, it was 2.4 milligrams a week. And we do see a significantly lower percentage of patients achieving that 5% weight loss in our comparator group in surpass two compared to the findings of the step one study. Another one is the duration. So the time frame for surpass 2 is 40 weeks, where we were looking at weight reduction over 68 weeks in the step 1 study. So also a shorter amount of time to kind of see that weight reduction. One other thing that I would note, um, there were different enrollment criteria. Um, so the surpass 2 study included people with lower BMIs, though on average, the BMIs of patients enrolled in SURPASS-2 would have qualified them for enrollment into step one. So Katie and Diana, I have a I have the big question that I'd like to ask. What is the role of terzapatide in the treatment of type 2 diabetes? We now have seven, that's right, seven GLP-1 receptor agonist products on the market today. Is terzapatide truly different because it's dual activity and it works at two different receptors? And should terzapatide become the go-to agent among the incretin mimetics? Or despite the differences in the pharmacological activity, do you view terzapatide as merely a me-too drug that creates perhaps competition in the marketplace, which perhaps might lead to lower prices, but that's about it. So I find the results of this study encouraging, especially when it comes to the A1C reduction that they did see along with the weight benefits, but there's some information that I'm still waiting to hear about too. I'm eagerly awaiting the results of the cardiovascular trial with terzepatide, especially given some theoretical benefits to cholesterol metabolism that are proposed with the dual action. Um, 
I'm also awaiting the cost and coverage information to see if this is a medication that will be accessible to my patients. And I'm interested in seeing additional tolerability data. There's been a lot of speculation that, again, this dual action with GLP-1 and GIP agonism might lead to lower rates of GI adverse events, which is not what was found in this study. So based on these results alone, I might not start with this first for everybody, but I would consider terzepatide if we needed some extra A1C reduction or extra weight loss with some of the standard GLP-1 agonists that we are using today. So I'm actually really impressed uh, by the results of this study as well as other ones in the SURPASS trial. I think terzepatide is showing that it really has quite remarkable A1C and weight loss potential which will definitely help many people with type 2 diabetes. But I think the thing is that's only really half of the story. The other half is the cardiovascular impact. And what we've learned is that just lowering A1C or just reducing weight is not enough. And in fact, you know, we've seen from other medications that sometimes doing that will have no impact on cardiovascular outcomes. And so that's really where things are at now. How is it going to impact cardiovascular disease, you know, kidney disease, heart failure? We need to know that information. And fortunately, that is being studied right now in the surpass uh, CVOT. So that's what's going to answer the question, and that is what's going to drive where it will fit in the treatment algorithm, because if it ends up showing that it has that cardiovascular outcome data, it could honestly replace GLP-1 agonists if it is more potent. But if it shows that it does not or it's neutral, then yeah, you know, it's an option um, and maybe good if people need a little more weight loss or something, but it's not, you know, it's not going to make the splash. So I cannot wait to see what will happen in the future. But for right now, it is a little bit of a question mark. Well, Diana, Katie, Nabila, I want to thank all of you for joining me today to talk about the SURPASS-2 study and the potential role of terzepatide in the treatment of type 2 diabetes. I think it's clear from your comments it's a bit premature to decide whether terzepatide will have a real role in the treatment of type 2 diabetes or not. We need those cardiovascular and renal outcome studies to really make a, a clear decision about whether it has a place in therapy. Well, tell us what you think. Do you think there is a patient population who might benefit from terzepatide over the other agents in the class? Remember, only iFormerX members can leave comments and use the interactive features on the website. If you're not already a member of iFormerX, please sign up today. It's free for health professionals. And if you are a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist, or perhaps you're studying to become a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist, I encourage you to check out the ambulatory care board prep and recertification program offered through the American Pharmacists Association. Through our partnership with APHA, you can earn recertification and continuing education credit. Just click on the link posted below the commentary on the iFormerX website to learn more. And lastly, I want to thank all of you who have given financial contributions to iFormerX over the past year. While all of our activities are supported by the voluntary efforts of our many, many contributors, we do have some expenses to maintain our infrastructure, things like the cost of maintaining our website or our podcast host provider. 
And if you would like to give a tax-deductible gift to help support iFormerX, please click on the donate link found in the navigation bar on our website. And 100% of the funds that you donate to the University of Mississippi Foundation will go in support of iFormerX. And that will help us deliver on our mission, which is bringing you the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. Uh, a gift of any amount is greatly appreciated. If you value the content we produce and want to support our mission, please consider signing up for a recurring monthly gift of five or $10 which will provide us with ongoing support throughout the year. Well, thank you. And until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. Mm -hmm.